Hey y'all, and welcome back to another episode of the Crude Audacity podcast, the podcast that talks shop shit and all things strategy with oil patch influencers. As always, I'm your host, Catherine Mills. I'm a reservoir engineer with a focus on advanced characterization. So today we will be discussing my favorite subject, the evolution of the reservoir engineer. Understandably, there are many definitions associated with this discipline in the oil field. Some of them might be more valuable than others. And yet, the position of reservoir engineer finally links all oil field roles and responsibilities together. I believe the best definition of a reservoir engineer was described to me in this way. Reservoir is where the uncertainty ends, meaning that because we have a unique position that generates interdisciplinary analysis from field to firm, it is our role and responsibility to end the uncertainty through communication and science. But the market has changed, the industry is pivoting, and our processes must evolve as well. Our influencer today is here to help us navigate the evolution of the reservoir engineer. Having started her career in Perth, Australia, she has been engulfed in all variations of the reservoir, from PVT, reserves bookings, numerical analysis, completions, production, oh my goodness, (laughs) uncertainty mitigation, field development planning. She has done it all, and of course, with economics in mind. She has ascended the job description to team lead, spearheaded advanced technical analysis, and has become a noteworthy woman in energy. So today, let's jerk a chain in our PDP. Deb Ryan, thanks so much for joining the Crude Audacity today. You're welcome. It's great to be here. (laughs) Well, I'm not sure if you realize, but when I started telling people what I was doing and who I was interviewing, every single person said to interview you. Did you realize that you were that popular and famous throughout industry? They didn't ask. They didn't suggest. It was multiple people saying, get with Deb. <laughs> well, I'm very flattered. I do, I do know a few of the people that you have interviewed previously, so I'll have to go find them and say thank you, so, which is very sweet. Um, yeah, it's been an interesting journey since I've joined um, or moved to the U.S. from Australia and how I've been involved in the community and stuff like that. Um, you still have a fabulous accent. <laughs> I'm trying to keep it. I'm trying really hard. So Well, let's jump straight into it and give your people what they want. <laughs> Tell us everything, how you started in uni, what brought you to oil and gas, and really, why did you leave Australia? <laughs> I love that you called it uni. Um, I know, awesome. I know what to do. <laughs> Boarding school. Yeah. Um, so I had a, a, an interesting path, I guess, um, I decided very young that I was going to be an engineer. Um, How young? 12. What? Yep. Um, I need to talk to my brothers. <laughs> um, I was always good at math and science. And I was, we used to go across to an island called Rotnest Island as kids. And I was fixing the bikes before we left and, and having a great time about it. And my mom was like, you should be an engineer. I'm a like, mechanical well, engineer there. What do they do? <laughs> She's like, well, they build things. I'm like, well, that sounds fun. Anyway, and off I went. Um, I It made high school actually really easy. I knew exactly what I wanted to do. Mm-hmm. I was good at math and science, and it, it made it – I loved chemistry, so I went into chemical engineering. And it wasn't until I finished my undergraduate at 21, and I was like, well, what am I going to do now? You enjoyed organic chemistry? Because um, I know they take you through those they classes. They do. <laughs> and actually, I didn't do very well in organic chemistry, which <laughs> the fact that I've ended up in petroleum was quite funny. I was pretty good at physical chemistry, but it, it, I did a gas reservoir elective with the petroleum oh. department in my last year of chemical engineering. At 17, I was convinced I was going up to the West Australian mine sites to work on a mine. And <laughs> I did awesome. a gas reservoir engineering class. And they were like, we've got a one-year master's program, which was crazy. And I went, done. And I, <laughs> I rolled straight out of chemical engineering into my master's of petroleum engineering. And um, the rest is history um, to a certain extent. Um, I started, after finishing my master's, I started with Woodside in okay. Perth. Yeah. Um, actually working on heavy oil. Woodside's known for the big North Rankin LNG projects. Um, So I've had some exposure to those, but I was doing heavy oil offshore um, in Western Australia. And for the first part of my career spent on the rig, we we were drilling wells, we were doing appraisal, fluid analysis, fluid sampling, testing, 
Um, and then I did my final master's thesis actually while I was doing that on then the completion design for that project, which given that was um, 15 years ago now, which is kind of terrifying, but <laughs> I'm like, well, I think I'm getting old. Um, maybe not. I don't know. Um, it was on two kilometer mile multilateral horizontal wells in a thin oil rim and the completion really? design that went with it. And so this is where a lot of this discussion, again, I saw a presentation yesterday by Diana Hoff. And again, she made a comment, everything that's old is new again. And that's um, true. You know, everyone's talking about all these extended reach horizontal wells. And it's like, we've, we've been doing this as an industry for a long time. Yeah. The frac designs and the completion designs that go with that have evolved, but yeah. Um, they just quote kind of, unquote optimized. Yeah. Well, and the way that we, we plug and perf horizontal wells now and stuff is very different. But it's the actual concept of drilling. We ran some of the first resistivity, um, you know, deep resistivity for geosteering offshore. Um, it was a test tool for Schlumberger at the time, 15 years ago. And, you know, we could then use that information to optimize our inflow control devices along the completion. So that is cool. Uh, it was really cool. So I, I stayed on that project through appraisal. I was on the FPSO and we turned the field on. And then, you know, I, I then went into production. And then actually we had to do some um, interventions. So they put a semi-sub, uh, sorry, a coil tubing unit on the semi-sub. And I got shifted back to the semi-sub while we did <laughs> intervention with a coil tubing offshore. Um, and it was, it was great fun. Um, That's so I saw awesome. that project through all, all kind of aspects. So it was a really good learning ground. Um, I learned very young <clears throat> that, that you can't ask silly questions. Um, I was also, <laughs> first time I went offshore, um, I couldn't figure out why everybody knew my name. What? And um, I was talking to my mom and this is still, and this dates me, which is horrendous. Your cell phone didn't reach the beach. I could see the beach, but your cell phone didn't work. So there was one <laughs> phone that everyone had to sign up so that you could, you know, call. And so I, was, I called my mum, and um, she's like, well, "How many people are offshore?" I'm like a hundred, because there'd been a whole thing about bed space. She's like, "How many girls?" I'm like, "It's just me." I'm like, "Oh, that's why they all know my name." She was like, "Come home, come home right now." Yes. <laughs> but I had my mother would do the same. She'd be like, "What the heck?" And I was 23. I was running around offshore, um, all this kind of stuff. But I had a great time. So Deb and was on deck. <laughs> I was, was, and I, I could. It wasn't that I couldn't ask silly questions, mm -hmm. but I asked appropriate questions. I could go yeah. and sit with the driller, and I was interested in what they were doing. And mm -hmm. um, they also learned very quickly that I, I knew what I was doing, and I could help and stuff like that as well. So, yeah. um, you know, and I remember there was one day, and I can't remember what this guy said, but everyone, for all the rouseabouts and stuff, were sitting in the mudroom. And I walked in off the deck. It's like a million degrees because it's Australia. And he said something, and I don't remember what he said, but I came back with something straight away and like turn around, walk straight out. You just heard this, whoa, like from everybody <laughs> else. Cause I, I like, I could give as good as I could take. And there was a respect out there. And a lot of the people that were on the rig when we were drilling the wells actually went across to the FPSO. So mm. I knew a lot of them. They were, everyone worked for the same company. Um, and it was a great time. It was fun and you learn a lot. And um, yeah, it was a really good learning ground for me. Um, across a number of different disciplines, um, which was really cool. And I think it's unfortunate. I think that's something, and we can talk about this a little bit later, but I think that's something that's missing a little bit um, mm -hmm. with people seeing the full cycle and getting out to the field. Yeah. Um, so anyway, um, so that's where I started. Um, I, uh, I then actually, I, sh I shifted very briefly to the Northwest Shelf where I was working on some of the um, stranded oil rims that flowed back a gas play and oh. they couldn't figure out what to do with all these thin oil rims yeah that were marginal but some of them economic and stuff like that so i kind of got put in charge of that pretty early to try and figure it out working with the jv <laughs> and how are we going to develop this stuff um i did that for for a few months and then the opportunity to go to libya turned up libya yeah and i'd what? thrown i know i'd That's thrown so my cool. hat in the ring um six months prior and um, spoke to the head of reservoir and stuff. I was like, yeah, I'll go. And they gave the opportunity to someone else. I was like, fine. Um, and then unfortunately, you know, the person that they'd identified couldn't ended up not being able to go. They were like, are you still interested in that? I'm like, yeah, I am. <laughs> and six weeks later I was in Tripoli. Um, what? that's so cool. Yeah. The head of reservoir engineering called me. Um, I was offshore at Christmas cause it tended to be that every time I went offshore, it was a holiday. Um, which is fine. So I was offshore and he's like, yeah, are you still interested? So I got back and uh, 
I'm like, guess what? My family's like, well, I'm going to Libya. <laughs> so God. how was mom when you said that? That's so, <laughs> fine. They, they know I like traveling. I mean, I did my first international trip without my parents at 14. So I've always been a traveler. Yeah. So off I went and I had a great time. I was only there for three months, but um, it was a fascinating time. So it was 2008 before um, Gaddafi and his family was still in power. It was okay. Before that all happened, it was it was a year before the Arab Spring. Oh. And um, Libya had been open, I guess. Um, the embargo had been lifted in 2004. So they'd I spent a lot of time talking to some of the other women in particular that had been over there and some of them for long periods of time about, you know, just some of the challenges of being in a Muslim country, mm-hmm. um, particularly going over there on my own. Yeah. Um, I, That's a learning curve. Yeah. Um, I wasn't married. I, um, you know, and, and I wasn't going with anyone, which is a big deal in, in the Middle East. Mm-hmm. But um, I, I learned a little bit of Arabic. Um, I had long um, hair at the time, so I just wear it in a braid. Um, I didn't wear, um, a full hijab or anything like that, but I did, you know, I always had scarves on and everything was, do you still speak the Arabic? Shui, shui. (laughs) (laughs) That's awesome. A little bit. A little bit. Um, and, uh, so I could walk around the old city and I kind of blended in. I'm not, I'm not tall. I'm not short. I'm not skinny. I'm not fat. I was a Mm -hmm. little bit, um, I would say more tan at the time (laughs) because Australia is hot all the time. Um, so I kind of blended in yeah. and actually after three months I was, I was at an event, um, by one of the service companies and someone at the hotel, uh, like a staff member at the hotel mistook me. Um, she was Libyan and mistook me as a Libyan. I was like, I gotta go home. Like <laughs> been here too long. Um, I'm native. But it was a, fin- it was a fantastic experience, um, working on carbonate fields. So looking at completion design in carbonates and, um, some sandstone work and stuff like that mm-hmm. in both the certain Mazuk basins and got to go camping in the Sahara Desert and random stuff that, that people don't get to do. They don't get like, to do that was, anymore. So it was a phenomenal experience and I was really disappointed when um, we were closing the office and I moved back to Perth and 12 months later the Arab Spring happened. I was like, well, I was good. That anyway, was good timing. So my timing was impeccable, but good it was Lord. a phenomenal experience and um, re- really cool opportunity. So... Um, I wouldn't have got it if I hadn't have asked for it. And mm-hmm. that's always been my thing. If you don't, if you don't ask, you don't get. Exactly. Nobody, nobody taps you on the shoulder for things. You've you got to go put yourself out there and you've got to find it. And it's funny talking to younger people now as well. And everyone's like, you're so lucky. And I'm like, it's no. not luck. <laughs> I don't believe in luck. I believe in hard work and asking for what you want. And that's been very true of a lot of my moves with my career and, and some of the opportunities that have presented themselves. So, mm-hmm. um, so I got back from Libya and, um, actually ended up following a colleague of mine across to Brisbane to go and work on the Colbert Methane LNG projects. Okay. Um, and so I was the, the head reserves engineer. Um, there was 200 of us when I joined. Mm-hmm. Um, and through big company acquisition, um, I worked for Arrow Energy and Shell and PetroChina bought the company out. So we went from a tiny 200-person Australian-run company to a you know very major-owned um, entity, um, with a lot of changes that went with that, but I was with Arrow for a year, or I was there for three years, but a year through the the transition and stuff like that with the two companies, um, coming in to develop the field. And, um, that's when I I first started coming over to the U S because I was the head of the reserves. So I'd come and fight with our reserve auditors. Um, so I sat on the other side of the table that I, you're like, no, this is how it's going to work. And it's funny, like, um, the person that, that I was working with who, um, Tim Hower, who was the CEO of MHA and still a colleague of mine, I'd come out here and I'd be like, you're wrong. And, <laughs> and, and we'd fight about it and, it, and not in a bad way, yeah, you yeah. know, good technical debate about the work we were doing that was underpinning our work and mm-hmm. where he sat as a reserve auditor and, and we'd have a good solid debate about it. And, um, and then we'd all go for dinner and, It'd be great and yeah. it'd be fine. And um, one of the other um, staff members who was sitting in on those meetings was like, nobody fights with Tim like that. I'm like, what do you mean? He was wrong. <laughs> and she was like, but nobody fights with Tim like that. And I was like, what? And she thought I was about 10 years older than I was, which was a really? huge compliment. Um, and and But we had a great time. I, I knew the team mm-hmm. in Denver really well. And after coming over and sitting on the other side of the table for – Three years, I after the third trip, I I 
contacted Tim and I was like, can I come work for you guys? And he's like, yes, yes, Aww. you can. And I'm That's moved. awesome. And so you just asked for it. Exactly. Again. Yeah. So it was a great opportunity. Um, I'd had um, very early in my career, and I think this is where as well we're seeing a lot of this happening at the moment. I don't, I don't think that's unusual, but um, working for a big operator and I was like, well, when am I going to be in management? When am I going to have a leadership position? When am I going to do that? Mm-hmm. And I remember sitting down with the head of development and she's like, why are you in such a hurry for that? And I was like, well, this is what I'm supposed to do, right? And so we kind of talked about it and stuff. And then one of my mentors, um, who's still a very good friend of mine, I saw him six months ago in Perth again, uh, he was a consultant as well. And he sat down with me and he's like, well, didn't you go to school because you wanted to learn the technical? Mm-hmm. It's like, well, yeah. And he's like, so why are you in such a hurry to leave that behind? And I was like, oh, I don't know. Why am I? <laughs> Did um, you realize that that would be leaving it behind? No. And I think that's kind of some of this struggle that we have is that we think that we need to move quickly. And I'm I'm a horrendous person at this where I'm like, well, these check boxes, right? And yeah. women are very very um funny about that where it's like okay cool i did this next i did this next whether it's yeah whether it's our personal lives our professional lives whatever it is this is what society expects this is what the company expects so therefore i will just check through it exactly checkbox 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 so it was kind of it felt sort of part of that um and he pulled me aside and he's like, why? He's like, you're good at the technical work. You enjoy the technical work. Why would you walk away from that? Um, and that was, it was part of the decision to follow. Then the other person that I did um, to Brisbane, um, she was a phenomenal reservoir engineer as well. Mm-hmm. And I loved working with her and we had a great time in Brisbane um, and she's still there um, working for a different company now. But, um, you know, learned so much from so many people that I was around and, um, when Shell came in to Arrow, um, I remember sitting down with the new head of Reservoir and I was like, I don't want the job you're about to offer me. He was like, what? It's <laughs> like, I don't want to run the team. What? And he was like, what do you mean you don't want to run the team? I'm like, I don't want to do it. I'm not going to be your middle manager doing people's performance reviews with only seven years experience. And I was like, I've already spoken to one of the other teams and I'm going to go and be the Reservoir engineer for the input for the LNG plant. And that's what I'm going to do. And he went, okay yeah <laughs> I was like give to find someone else and like walked out and they did and it was fine and I went and put myself I totally just went and put myself in a different team and and it was an important role and working with the economics team essentially as the go-between between the reservoir engineering group and the economic group essentially um and it, and it, so it was that's it's one of the reasons I stayed after the the acquisition of Shell and PetroChina as long as I did because yeah. I, I went and kept doing some of the technical work and it was part of the motivation of joining MHA is that oh, okay. to go into consulting was to kind of stay with that. I, yeah, yeah. I've got to work alongside industry experts, um, you know, people that, you know, we teach a lot of classes for PetroSkills and, mm-hmm. um, you know, we're, we're leaders in our fields and yeah. that's been really beneficial for me over the last seven and a half years and it's it's a it was a great decision um and now it's kind of funny now I'm actually manager (laughs) and it's okay but it's I'm still considered a young manager yeah you are at 36 and yet I could have gone into it like eight years ago but I'd be in a very different spot Mm -hmm. because I'd never be able to move past middle management without the technical background that I now have and that's that's been an interesting – it's been a really interesting ride mm-hmm. um, in that regard. So that's kind of where we are now. So, yeah, <laughs> now I'm I, uh, yeah, I'm in a management role and wearing a lot of hats and that's – it's interesting and it's great and I'm learning a lot very quickly. So <laughs> I mean, it's so it's, it's such good advice to slow down, learn your role, and excel at it. Yeah. And that's going to make management so much easier because there, there's, we've got such age gaps here. We do. And – you know, I again, right place, right time. Coming out to the US in 2012 when oil was $120 a barrel was an easy sell. Yeah, we need people. Yes, yes. come. <laughs> Whereas now, you know, we're on the opposite side of that. There's more we're engineers than there are side. jobs. And um, when when oil crashed, I got a lot of friends in Australia in 15 and 16 who were like, "How do I get to the US?" And I'm like, "You're too late." Um, <laughs> It's, which is just the unfortunate, you know. With, it's true. You know, the jobs need to go to local people. And unless people were already here on visas or mm-hmm. with permanent residency and stuff like that, it it, it wasn't possible, which yeah. is fine. You know, we as in Australia, in the US, wherever we are, we should be promoting and supporting, you know, our local 
support and hiring and well, hiring they're here. locally. Exactly. They're here, yeah. they're trained. And yeah, there's great engineers here in the US from all the different schools and stuff like that. So So yeah. true. Yep. Well, okay. So that was a lot. But yeah, that's <laughs> no, kind of I how it. I got to where I am. So So you've seen a lot of the market changes and you've seen it change across countries because, you know, I mean, our our narrow viewpoint, oil in North Dakota is not the same as oil in Texas, uh, East Coast, West Coast. The geopolitical is different, you know, the, I guess the technical is different, everything. But do you think, because we are seeing articles come out, shale, the death of shale, and I've been bringing this up quite often, uh, Wall Street exit strategies are changing, that all sort of falls back on the reservoir engineer. So did we somehow mess up? Did we dumb our discipline down so much that we did we ignored the science? Is it our fault that we are in the bind we are now? I actually think it is a little bit. Um, really? And unfortunately, coming from a conventional engineering background where so much time was spent doing PVT analysis and well test analysis and every reservoir engineer had to learn how to use a reservoir simulator and you know, everyone reserves, did. Everyone did. Oh it was God. part of our grad programs and stuff. And um, you're, you went through your reservoir engineering discipline. You learned how to do that. Um, we did. You know, I was. I did completion design as part of that. I did. You know, we we were very broad in what we did, but mm-hmm. we were expected to learn and understand the basics and reserves and decline curves. Were I didn't I didn't do reserves for the first three or four years of my career because that was for the very senior technical people and there was an entire reserves group and some of that's because it was a bigger company as well, but it 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 was it wasn't until like three or four years in that I even did reserves um, at Woodside and then before and then obviously went and was the reserves engineer over Arrow and it unfortunately with the rise of unconventionals and how quickly it grew mm-hmm. is that for a lot of companies, it was just drill and get out of the way. And yeah. Drill, baby, drill. Yep. Um, and it was fine while oil was $120. And, I mean, maybe you could argue that it wasn't fine because things like reservoir management and depletion and all this kind of stuff was kind of ignored. Very much ignored. Um, and it's still being ignored, and yeah. that's a huge problem. And when 2015 happened um, – and well, end of 14 into 15 and everyone consolidated down to the Permian mm-hmm. which at the time I was like what is going on I mean it just <laughs> didn't make any sense to why me. is everybody looking in one spot it, I mean I, I got the people that were in there early the oxys those kind of companies that had acreage early great made sense low cost environment for everybody else that was starting to spend all this money and even for the investment community I think a lot of companies were pushed that way that's where the money is go yeah follow the money follow the money and go and we will fund you Mm -hmm. to do that and so i think on the back of decline curves that assumed that we wouldn't deplete the reservoir because it was tight and so no increasing gas on decline curves and stuff like that and i think that's where some of those simple fundamental reservoir engineering concepts were ignored Mm -hmm. and we're now seeing huge gas gluts in the Permian because everybody didn't account for the gas increasing as much yeah. as it did. And Well, hello, volatile oil. Exactly. <laughs> and, you know, the Permian is a naturally fractured reservoir and a naturally fractured system. And so... But people don't model that. No, you don't. And, <laughs> well, they don't. Um, and they should. And so, unfortunately, it, you know, I don't know that it was 100% the reservoir engineer's fault, but, you know, unfortunately, as unconventional reservoir engineers a lot of people know how to do decline curves and that's it yeah like 90 percent of us are decline aries techs and that's it's been an interesting conversation with with people i've had um you know as i'm looking for engineers to come and be consultants and stuff we do a lot of work on conventional reservoirs and i need those fundamental skills of material balance and well test analysis and modeling and Mm -hmm. you know and plus then when we look at our unconventionals the data analytics and the the decline curve analysis that goes with that. And unfortunately, um, there's so many engineers now that shale's been around for 10 years and they've only worked on unconventionals and that's all they can do. And Mm -hmm. I think people are limiting themselves. I think that's really the message is that um, 
for some people that's that's great and you you know you can go and you know you go work for a company and you work your way up to that company and because and you alluded to it a little bit before because of the age gap that we've got where I'm kind of almost at the upper end of that gap mm-hmm. before then all old people that are retiring or have retired you know we know there's a huge gap and the yeah. whole crew change and that's for the most part happened and I think unfortunately what we've done is and we're doing is even though there was this huge gap just in age full stop is that then all the senior technical people like my own age are now in management so we've actually made that gap even bigger Mm-hmm. And we've got we dumbed down the discipline. And we've got very young people making very big decisions around economics and financing on the back of decline curves that were done without really thinking about it. Yes, exactly. And it's it's a problem, and and we're starting to see that with how we see the rates of return and mm-hmm. all this sort of stuff happening. So it's not to say that everyone out there isn't doing a good job. Everyone for a lot of it, everybody know everybody that I know is working like a million hours Um, because there's not companies are trying to operate lean and mean which unfortunately people are a huge overhead Mm -hmm. so we're doing a lot with not many people um which is really unfortunate and so even when people want to do some of the science and take a look back and analyze and stuff they kind of don't have time either because everyone's trying to do so much as well so it's not to say that it's people are doing it intentionally or that people aren't thinking about it intentionally it's a I go into work and I like fight fires for eight hours or 12 hours or whatever it is. And I go home again and yeah. then I come back and I do the same thing. And so it's, it's a challenge and figuring out that I think it, it, it is going to be a challenge. And, but I think, you know, if, and in talking to younger engineers, uh, you know, and I do that a lot, it's, it's don't, don't restrict yourself. Don't put yourself in a box and, mm-hmm. and take your time. Yeah. So well, anyway, that was a lot. <laughs> we have, um, there are two big games out there. So for big companies, it's re- reserve stacking, reserve booking. Uh, for private equity-backed companies, it's, you know, time value money. Get it out of the ground. You know, we had, what, a blip last week where we had $72 oil for a good eight hours. And I can guarantee you everybody was like, heck, yeah. <laughs> but the game has changed. So how does the life cycle of economics change? How does the analysis change so that reservoir engineers can become the leader of the interdisciplinary teams like we were intended to do yeah i think i I think what we're going to see is a lot more consolidation um that's going to come rumors are coming yeah it's well not even not even rumors i mean when we look at the pdc src acquisition that was announced a couple of weeks ago is a really good example of that it made sense Mm -hmm. it's it's PDC picking up net acres in an area that they understand that they can operate with the people that they have, which is really unfortunate for people that were at SRC. But I think we're going to start seeing a lot of this consolidation. And with the consolidation and then hopefully with additional time and with additional people, we can actually start taking a look back at what we've done well, what we haven't done well, how we're going to develop better. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know make better decisions and i think this can't the smaller companies and and we work with a lot of the smaller companies they don't have a lot of the technical staff they don't have the time they're trying to do things really quickly like you said they're trying to see this this turnaround on investment yeah um there's a huge disconnect in the market at the moment at least from what i see with buyers and sellers and so you know the buyers are still the buyers are out there looking for deals and the sellers are still well we're we're worth this much, you know, mm-hmm. with what it is. But unfortunately, when we look at things like takeaway capacity and differentials and cost of acquisition of land and stuff like this, some of it's just not economic. And, you know, not all operators are created equal. Yes. Um, some of them are doing amazing things. And when you look at average type curves in basins, um, whether you're digging down on, you know, key areas or, or t- you know, totally, some operators are outperforming that. And some operators are definitely underperforming that. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, it's, it's those ones that need to take a step back and, and have a look at, at what they're doing and how are they managing their costs and why aren't they doing as well as their competitors. And how, you know, unfortunately, I think a lot of the stuff that's going publicly is that 
hey, look at look at how how good we are, and we're all above average. Not everybody can be above average. That's not how <laughs> statistics works. Um, <laughs> so everyone thinks they are. Everyone <laughs> thinks they're above average. And I'm like, that doesn't work. And <laughs> that's you know, unfortunately, that's that's going to be one of the big things for for the bigger companies. They're going to be able to ride that out. They are doing well. They've got a big enough volume and portfolio that it, it's okay. But yeah. for the little companies that are you know they can't get necessarily big drilling programs together or they don't have as much of a technical team and therefore they can't do some of that work and the, the due diligence and the technical work, whether mm-hmm. it's from reservoir completions or whatever it is, to make sure that they are operating above average to, to make sure that they're economic. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's, it's twofold. We keep hearing from the investment community that everyone has to operate within cash flow. Yeah. And so every presentation I've been to recently where it's an operator, they're like, look, we're doing what the community wants or the investment community wants. We're operating within cash flow. And Gold yet, star. <laughs> yeah, and yet nobody's share price has gone back up. Nobody, you know, everyone's, you know, you look at what's going on at Wall Street with energy companies. And so what's being missed? Like, what's the big thing that's being unfortunately. Missed? Everyone's forgetting about that cost of acquisition and the cost of drilling. When you look at reserve base, particularly from a PDP, mm-hmm. and what we're seeing with values at the moment is the PDP is really what's driving a lot of this stuff yeah. and the acquisitions and the discussions. Four or five years ago, it was PDP and PUD, and the PUDs are really – the undeveloped locations are really being not included in some parts of the country from an evaluation point of view because, one, they're not economic, or, two – there's risk of them not being developed or not yeah. being able to hook in and stuff like that. And the economics on those PUDs, when you start adding in the cost of capital, and then if you go a step back further and actually add in the cost of acquisition, mm-hmm. a lot of it's not economic. And when companies are saying that they're operating within cash flow and yet the investors want their return on investment, but that investment's gone. <laughs> gone, gone. <laughs> then it's not a surprise to me at all that the investment community's mad. So... You know, I think companies are going to have to take a good hard look at themselves in terms of their overhead, which unfortunately for a lot of companies means people. Um, I think we're going to see a lot more consolidation in the Permian in particular, but I think we'll see it everywhere Mm -hmm. Um, because people need to increase their inventory and lower their overheads to make sure that not just are they operating within cash flow, but they can actually provide a return on investment. Mm -hmm. And that's the piece that's missing at the moment, I think. So that's good well um so the evolution of the reservoir engineer are is our frontier big data and if so what does that mean because like you said nobody's getting taught about simulation and the pitfalls and the peaks of it and honestly you have to fall into a consulting team these days or a technical consulting team like true technical uh to even get that you know level of detail in modeling so is that going to be our frontier is that going to revolutionize uh our roles yes and no um so i i teach um for petra skills and we teach all over the world and having worked all over the world as well i get to work with different teams and Mm -hmm. i think here in the u.s because the unconventionals is as big as it is um i think the big data is very important um i think people are, are looking at it um obviously a lot all companies of all sizes are, are doing it, um, whether it's on, you know, and completion size versus EUR, essentially. Um, yeah. <laughs> how do we optimize That's our completions <laughs> to manage costs so that we can get as big of a volume as possible? Um and there's other things that go into it, but that's generally what we're trying to do. Um <laughs> and it's important, but I think some of it is, and you know, I've seen a lot of presentations where people are talking about it, and I think it's a, a good message, but correlation is not causation, and we need to be careful of that. Um, there's a lot of ways to automate things like decline curves, um, and but that doesn't mean it's right. And it, Don't go out and do your own coding for the heck of it. <laughs> yeah, and not even that, but the, you know, there's, so many, um, there's so many people playing with it. There's so many service providers that are providing software and automation so that we can do things quicker faster better but we just have to be checking that better bit um quicker and faster great but unfortunately you you can't you can't get all three right you can't get fast cheap and accurate Mm -hmm. you you either need to be (laughs) fast and cheap or you need to be fast and you know accurate and not cheap not necessarily (laughs) cheap so there's always a balance right you can't have all three and that's what people are looking for and so we just have to really check ourselves as a technical community that we aren't just 
plugging numbers into a black box and going, yep, cool, it's fine, because it's not. Um, and and that's the challenge with it. But, you know, then looking internationally, except really down in Argentina and, you know, there's Australia with the carbon methane and China's doing a lot of carbon methane in shale as well, but not to the same level, we, we don't see the unconventional development. Mm-hmm. You know, it's starting, people are talking about it, but we don't see it to the same level. And so... When I teach in Southeast Asia or when I teach in Australia or when I teach in Europe, the engineers and and geologists and whoever else that's coming to the classes have conventional backgrounds and they are doing conventional things. So I think it's something that here in the US we need to not forget about. And even when I teach down in Houston, a lot of the reservoir engineers and and other disciplines that come to the classes are from Gulf of Mexico and offshore. And so it's a very different discussion. So I don't know that we're completely destroying it, but I think when it comes to unconventionals in particular, we just need to make sure that we're we're doing the best we can and that we're actually starting to think about it and making sure that we're not just throwing data into a black box and, and calling it good. Um, you know, there's I love going to Urtech every year. I've been the last few years and I'm, I'm actually... last year was real It fun. was really good. <laughs> and the one in Houston last year was excellent as well. And... There's a lot of great work coming out of a lot of the universities about PVT and unconventionals yeah. and material balance and rate transient analysis. And there is a lot of work being done in that space from a reservoir engineering point of view. And I'm excited about that. It's just then making sure that we have the time to then do it, mm-hmm. which is the challenge. So I think we're getting there. Um, we kind of had the, the cart before the horse for a little bit. And, you know, it, it'll take a little bit of time. But, yeah. So when an operator comes to you and says, well, why would I move to modeling to, you know, I guess, uh, develop my field or to do spacing analysis? I've used DCA. I'm a non-op. You know, I only have limited information anyway. So what's the benefit? And this is the way we've always done it. I don't know that DCA is the best way to do a spacing analysis, but I've gotten pushback from several operators who just like, that's voodoo. I don't understand it. So... Kind of what's your response when they start pushing back on the newer tech? Yeah. Reservoir simulation is a really interesting thing. I've been doing it my whole career. Um, it has a really good place in a reservoir engineer's toolkit. It really does. Um, what I find is that the person, the decision maker for, for if a team's going to pick it up um, is either loves it or mm-hmm. hates it. And there's no in between. Um, <laughs> and unfortunately, if someone's had a bad experience with it where, you know, simulation can take a lot of time and a lot of money and a lot of hours and yeah i mean well an hours equals money um whether you're a consultant or you're paying a staff member to do it or whatever yeah um, a lot of time equals a lot of money and sometimes without good results and it so it does seem a little bit black boxy to some people and so i, I get it mm-hmm. i really do um and i I have always kind of said, and, and when I teach my classes as well, I talk to this, I'd either, I either want to have all the data or, or no data mm-hmm. and not just some. And I know that sounds really weird, <laughs> but if I've got all the data and all the data is relative, obviously, because we never have all the data. But, um, you know, if we've got good relative permeability curves and capillary pressure curves, which some people will argue for unconventionals aren't necessary, so fine. Um, but... PVT characterization, yeah. which is huge, and that's kind of the value, and we'll talk about that in a minute. Um, pressure data. And I know in unconventional is trying to get <laughs> static. <laughs> I, know. I know in unconventional is trying to get static pressure is is really difficult, but people are doing a lot with um, fall-off testing. Um, and I am starting to see operators putting bottom hole pressure gauges in their wells. Yeah. And that is like amazing i cannot you know yeah please give finally. me <laughs> because everything that we do subsurface i don't care if it's a completion failure or a reservoir problem it's all about pressure fluid flows from high pressure to low pressure and we need to understand it mm-hmm. and when a client comes to me and goes yeah cool i've got production data and we've got some like public log data so that we can estimate permeability and porosity yeah. i won't do it to be honest there's I no agree. point um and the so if we have good data, then and I've done work with unconventionals with clients doing well spacing, and it's they've got it, it's those two things really. They've got good pressure data, flowing pressure data. They don't necessarily have static pressure data, but we can estimate that from frac gradients mm-hmm. and stuff like that. Fine, and good reservoir fluid characterization. 
it's key, particularly when we get into these volatile windows. And that's the difference. The, the flip side of having no data is that I can run all sorts of ranges and I can very easily bound my output. Yes. We assumed this, 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 and this, and this is the output. We assumed this, 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 and this, and this is a different output. But look, we can bound your problem. Mm -hmm. So the no data is actually kind of fun as well. But which is, but it's a strange thing, right? <laughs> it's that in between. Um, and that's, for me, the spacing piece and the work that we've done um, for clients has really been around. Unfortunately, there aren't really great black oil correlations out there for volatile fluids, retrograde gases and volatile oils. There's starting to be some that are actually not too bad. And again, there's a lot of work being done in that space. Um, but a lot of them aren't built into things like harmony and some of these other things and yeah. people aren't necessarily like i kind of alluded to earlier taking into account either rising gors or decreasing condensate gas ratios when they're doing decline curve analysis mm -hmm. which that just in and of itself um if you ever sit in a class or hear me do a talk about decline curve analysis i spend probably way too long on those two things <laughs> increasing gors decreasing cgrs uh, every time anyway um it, it makes a difference. So that really sitting in that volatile fluid, which a lot of these unconventionals sit in that and understanding that you can then also play games on frac design really nicely. You know, yeah. the, frac, the frac modeling has come a long way. It integrates really nicely into pretty much most of the simulation packages and mm -hmm. to be able to incorporate those two things along with a good fluid description is again we can start playing some games and bound some stuff and that's really the value in simulation mm -hmm. it's never going to be a perfect answer no um but it's going to give us good indications and good um yeah good direction essentially that's kind of a yeah anyway but it does definitely have a value and it, but sometimes if people have had bad experiences you'll never you'll never, you'll never bring them. them back so it, it's up to the individual to a certain extent. But. So we are seeing the consolidation. We're seeing lean means stronger. But let's instead of five years out, let's go 10 years out. Mm. How is our industry going to change? What What is your gift of foresight for us? Ooh, 10 years. That's I didn't even know what I was going to be doing 12 months ago. So 10 years is a really <laughs> long way. Um, <laughs> yeah, if you'd have asked me what I would, if I was going to be here 12 months ago, I would not have predicted at all um anyway <laughs> but 10 years um it, it's going to be really interesting where you know where all the people that are currently 30 ish you mm -hmm. know plus or minus whatever uh we've got this huge tranche of workers essentially that are in that kind of 25 to 32 year range because of how many people went through petroleum schools and stuff during you know the up to up the high oil price time versus, you know, versus now. now. <laughs> and again, you know, with, with all the talk about, you know, this downturn mimicking what happened in the 1980s and stuff like that. And we've oh, I've got heard the, predictions that we're about to hit the, 2008 again. Yeah. So, you know, which it, I wouldn't be surprised if that happens. Um, but I think what we're going to see is almost the same thing where we're, from a people point of view, we've got, you know, a really good, solid sort of 40 to 50 year old age group mm -hmm. with a bit of a gap. Um, I don't know that we'll have as many younger people coming through because I think the big challenge we've got for the industry is how do we continue getting people into not just STEM, but obviously into petroleum. Mm -hmm. um, with, you know, the green movement and stuff like that. Even I the think. geosciences. Yeah. Um, I think that's going to be a big shift. I think the industry is going to struggle to find good people to keep filling mm -hmm. roles. It'll be interesting to see how the oil and gas um, develops with the rise of renewables. Um, I'm, and I'm not going to even go into it today. This will have to be a different one. But this concept <laughs> of how we use and consume energy in this discussion and how the oil and gas industry is messaging that, mm -hmm. I think at the moment is still not there. We're not messaging stuff correctly and it just it's there's still very much an us and them and oh, it's a huge much. problem and as an industry we need to do better and I know there's a lot of people trying both here in Colorado and globally trying to, to, to message that um, I think gas is going to become more important mm -hmm. as a transition fuel for transportation for power generation for all of these aspects that 
coal is still used a lot for. Yeah. And I think people don't understand that or even recognize that. Um, and I think we've got a long way to go in that space. But I really think we're going to see – and gas is used, again, outside of the U.S. Gas is a, is a huge fuel for people. Mm-hmm. LNG market is massive and the U.S. is now involved in that but was a little bit late to the game. And, you know, getting energy into communities that don't have it in Africa, in parts of South America and how we do that because gas is hard to transport as well. So mm-hmm. we've got a huge challenge on our hands both for continuing to excite people about the industry and what we do as an energy industry in general, mm-hmm. whether it is oil and gas, whether it's renewables, whatever it is, everyone needs energy. And that's that message is, is not getting across appropriately at the moment so i think there are big challenges whether we get there or not in 10 years time i think the i think the industry is going to look very different Mm -hmm. um but it's going to depend on how as an industry we manage to do both of those things so you've done some amazing work in your career to lift other women with you you're involved in a number of organizations um and you've really taken the time to mentor people so this might be slightly controversial, but we have a lot of women taking over this industry and doing quite well in it. But there's still talks of sexism being treated like the secretary or the help, or you've earned your seat at the table, but you don't necessarily have a voice yet. Is this still a good old boys network or, you know, are women actually just complaining about the old ways as opposed to recognizing all the strides we've made? Yes and no. <laughs> um, How political of I you. Know, I know. Um, and some of it with – I've been really lucky. I've always worked in teams that are very women heavy, which mm-hmm. is awesome. Yeah. The first team I worked in um, back at Woodside, there was seven petroleum engineers, completion engineers and, and restaurant engineers, and five women, which 15 years ago was unusual. Um, it still would be unusual. Mm-hmm. Um, even when I went to Libya, we had female engineers in the team. So I've always been really fortunate to work with a lot of women. Um, I think some of it, it, it is a little bit of a generational thing. Um, what I always found is, and I still find it is that working with my peers, it doesn't matter if we're men or women, it matters how competent you are. Yes. Brains first. (laughs) Yeah. And you know, I found very early on when I was going through the grad program um, and, you know, running around offshore and stuff like that, people knew I was competent. Mm-hmm. And so they treated me with the respect that that deserved. Mm-hmm. And that's a good thing. Um, you know, I still got, you know, you, you still get the odd thing. You know, I talk about the, the roustabout that gave me crap, but I gave it back. And it's, and it's not that we should necessarily be acting like boys, but some of it's like, Look, I can take a little bit. It's yeah. fine. I'm not going to like... Play the game. I'm not going to get totally upset about whatever. Fine. Exactly. If it goes too far and it's inappropriate, you can bet that I'm going to be mad as hell. Um, <laughs> and unfortunately, and you you'll be. know about it because that's just kind of me. Um, and that's some of it as well. Like I don't... I am a, a very extroverted person. Shocking. <laughs> I've never been afraid to voice my opinion. Um, but... Not everyone's like that. Yeah. And that's okay because not if everyone was like that, it would be horrible. If everyone was introverted, it would also be horrible. It takes all types. Um, so I have been very fortunate to work in, in a lot of very female-heavy roles. Mm-hmm. Um, I have had female mentors and female um, role models. Mm-hmm. I've also had a lot of male ones as well. And mm-hmm. I think that's – it's not about as young women come through that they should only be looking to females, but I think it's also important that we see females in those roles. Mm-hmm. Um, I still, though, I was at a client meeting a month ago and there were 16 people sitting around the table and I was the only female um, still. Really? And, it, you know, it was a mix of technical people and investment bankers and stuff like that and I was the only woman. Um, I wasn't, I was one of the youngest in the room, but I would say there was probably three or four of us that were all about the same age. So the age thing started to become less because it used to be that I was the youngest and the only woman, um, that started to change just, yeah, I mean, and it's challenging and I've learned to not, I talk a lot Mm -hmm. 
as you're checking your watch as I keep talking. Um, <laughs> but like, I, I've learned as well. I'm, well, maybe I shouldn't say I've learned. I'm learning when I should be quiet. I, I'm We're still all not. That. I'm still not quite there um, by any stretch of any imagination. <laughs> but I'm learning, and in that particular meeting, when I did jump in. The CEO of the company, who's my client, was like, yeah, that that's what I'm trying to explain. You need to listen to her. Mm-hmm. And so then, and everyone did. And so it's making sure that we're... we're it was com- a male who was being an advocate. Yeah. And so it's making sure that we're, again, it's competence first. If I had have said something ridiculous and they were like, what? Rightly so, then they wouldn't have listened to me. And it's not to say that all the poor treatment that women get is because they're not competent. That is absolutely not what I'm trying to say either. Mm-hmm. It's... it, But... It, it's just unfortunate that not all of us have good, strong advocates. Yeah. And some of it as well, we're also not – and I think some of it is that we don't even recognise that we don't advocate for ourselves sometimes. Hmm. Um, I've been lucky to have really good champions that have championed me. I, yeah. I do ask for things, but I've, I've also had a lot of really good support, and that's important. Mm-hmm. And like you said, I've then tried to sort of pay that forward and yeah. also offer support to not just – females I tend to do a lot of that but to males as well um you know I do get a lot of young kids um particularly recent graduates and stuff come and I I will take the time and have coffee and it doesn't matter if they're male or female I'm not going to discriminate um you know that's it's kind of part of what we should be doing as Mm -hmm. leaders um so I like that well so back to volatility here this is usually the time when we see the innovators the disruptors they step forward, they solution, they change the game and they generate the pivot. What advice do you have for the men and women out there who might not have earned that seat at the table yet, but they are they are our next leaders? How can they not only earn the seat, but have a voice at the table that is effective, efficient, and still respects the, the dues that are paid? Yeah. And that that took me a little while to understand. And I think particularly when I became a partner, um, I think I I didn't pay enough respect to the older generation. Mm. I was new. I knew how I wanted to run things and I wanted to make changes. (laughs) And it upset a lot of people. And and to be honest, rightly so. Um, Yeah, yeah. And it it took me to step back and actually, you know, actually have the conversations in person about, look, we're all trying to to do this together. And even if we're going about it a little bit differently, Um, because you don't want to upset anybody. Mm -hmm. Um, This is a very small industry, Um, you know, depending on. Internationally, it's small. Yeah. And, you know, being in Denver and stuff, the Denver community is very small. It does not take much then to even go into the U.S. industry or internationally. Yeah. With. Um, how quickly or how not, you know, how not far removed everybody is. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's important is to not, don't say anything about, I, I was told very, very young in my career and early on in my career that you should never badmouth anybody because it will come back around. Oh, everyone finds out. And that's a big thing. And so as people are trying to grow and develop, you know, it's it's making sure that you're, you know, you are doing things that are are positive and supporting others and not just trying to like rise to the top and, you know, despite everybody else and ripping everybody. Burn everything on the way down. Exactly. (laughs) Because it'll be a very, you might rise up quickly, but it'll be a really quick demise as well. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's about building those relationships and those networks as well that then will champion you as well, because Mm -hmm. you, you can't do it on your own. That's the other aspect is that it, this industry is is a wonderful industry to work in but it's it's brutal and i mean i don't think that's unusual about the oil and gas industry i think a lot of industries are brutal but Mm -hmm. it's it's important to to build your networks to make sure you've got good mentors good role models good peers has been a really valuable and important thing for me particularly recently Mm -hmm. and that you are building a good platform and not not also then disregarding the people that are either a lot older or a lot younger either everyone comes in with different ideals we are all from different generations yeah um and that's that's an interesting thing because we work and play differently Mm -hmm. so 
No, I like it. All right, so we're here on a Saturday. You are yeah, at work. I am. <laughs> you have like three full-time jobs, and this is this is actually kind of common, especially for managers in our industry. So take us through a day in the life, in of, the Deb. life of Deb. 12 a.m. to 11 p.m. How do you stay organized? Do you have a morning routine to help you sort of battle the fires? How are you not running up and down 16th Street losing your mind right now? Um, some people would argue that I'm that I am doing that, but that's okay. That's okay. Not. That's, um, I mean, that's okay too. <laughs> You'd be in good company. Right? Maybe I don't know. There's some crazy people out there. Um, yeah, I am doing a lot um, with with the acquisition of MHA. Um, I'm now running the Denver office. Um, I then also report up through Calgary, our head office, and then I'm also still in a technical role doing you were billable in work. Calgary last week. Um, I'm heading there next week. Next week, mm-hmm. next week. Yep, um, I've I've got a lot of travel coming up here in the next few weeks. I've had colleagues from Calgary down here in town this week, which has been great. Um, but that's that's just at work. Um, you know, I, I'm also very active in the SPE. I'm yes. active in Women's Energy Network. Um, and I'm actually back at school. Um, I didn't know if you knew that. I did not know that. I'm doing my MBA because I'm a sucker for punishment. So I've got a lot going on. <laughs> Um, some would say too much. My husband would say too much. Um, and I am at work on a Saturday, essentially catching up on all the things I promised that I would do, um, (laughs) writing papers and reviewing papers and trying to do my expense reports and stuff like that. Um, just to try and catch up. Um, and it is a challenge. Um, I'm going to point you and obviously it's a podcast, so everyone can't see it, but Catherine can, I have, um, four notebooks sitting on my table, um, and they've all got... You're going to love this. They've all got different colors. Oh, I like that. The purple is my billable. The blue is my, like, personal. The black is my management book. This is my old one then. I'm transitioning. And then this is my 2020 calendar. I still write everything down. And this is my – sorry, that's my 2019, and this is my 2020. Oh, my God. Um, you live by those five And I, I write everything. I have to write everything down. Um, everyone's like, I can't believe you still have a calendar. You're a millennial. What the hell? (laughs) And if I don't write it down, it doesn't happen. Yeah. I don't remember it. Um, Yeah, no, it's too much happening. People will put things in my phone and I, in my calendar outlook, whatever it is. And I know a lot of people that live and die by that because they don't like to have, I mean, I lug this around with me every day along (laughs) with my tablet. Um, so my back also killed me, but that's just a whole separate thing. Um, (laughs) I have to write things down. Um, and if I don't, they, as far as I'm concerned, they don't happen. Um, it just, I forget about them. Um, and I write lists. So I also have a notepad here. And this was my list this week. And there's a whole bunch of stuff that hasn't been crossed off it. Um, I, um, every now and then, people will notice I write things on the back of my hands as well. Um, <laughs> I, I write things down. Um, I have to. And I have to cross things off the list. Yeah. Okay, I sat down this morning and I did it. And bef- just before Catherine got here this morning, I, I, one of these things got crossed off that list and it was very satisfying. Um, <laughs> I write lists of lists. I, anyway, I write a lot of lists. Um, I have to um, because otherwise things don't get done. Um, Do you it, think the writing helps you stay more organized? It's something because there is something about learning and writing yeah. it down. I really think it does. Um, in terms of a standard day, um, a weekday at least, um, I'm up by about six-ish. Okay. Um, I'm on the train for the most part by 6.30 and I'll get into the office here at anywhere between 7.15 and 7.45 depending okay. on which train I get and whatever. <laughs> if I go and get coffee beforehand or something, whatever. Um, I try and get a good hour of email done before everybody turns up. Okay. Um, your quiet time is your email time. Well, and some of it's just, okay, what's going on? What have I got to do? I'll grab a cup of coffee. I'll try and get some of my, you know, things like expense reports and things like that done. Like, how am I going to set my day up? Um, And recently then, for the past two weeks, I've been going to meetings. And it's it's brutal because that's not how I've I've operated historically. So it's meetings here with my – as I'm trying to delegate more of my technical work Mm -hmm. to the staff, it's it's then catching up with them. What did they do yesterday? What are they going to do today on different projects? So meetings in person, um, meetings with Calgary, um, you know, as we're, you know, trying to, I'm one of the senior leaders up there and stuff. So there's quite a lot of meetings involved both on the consulting side and then just generally with the company and stuff. So there's a lot of those meetings and then meetings here with my office manager and my accountant and stuff of just running the office. So there's been a lot of meetings recently 
Um, I, I do a lot of business development as well. So this okay. week um, it's been then, okay, I'm leaving at four to go to a happy hour or I'm, I'm heading to a lunch or my lunches are usually booked with meetings, whether it's a one-on-one or it's a community meeting or something like that, or okay. even lunch with my staff, um, you know. Just to catch up? Just to catch up. Um, a couple of weeks ago, our internet was down, so screw it. Let's go to lunch. <laughs> so, um, you know, it's, it's that's important as well. Like, I, I think making sure we have a good culture here in the office is really important. And mm-hmm. so that that's kind of a general day. Um, my I, I don't do any school at work. I make a point of that. Mm-hmm. Um, I do it after hours and on the weekends. Um, I'm, I'm not doing a full-time workload because that would be impossible. Um, but tomorrow will be school Sunday is school day. So, Sunday school um, day. So I do that. That's kind of what that is. Um, I read... Um, and I can't remember, I think it was um, through ink.com. I read an article a few years ago and it, it, it helped me kind of figure out this concept of like how do, how do I try and do everything, which is a myth and nobody can do that. It's ridiculous. But it talked about five concepts mm-hmm. essentially. And at any one time, we all try and do all five, and at any one time three of them will be going really well and you'll be kind of ignoring two. And, and, that, and, it's, and that that's okay. And that they, those things will change depending on your priority. And the five things are work, and I kind of lump school in with that. So, like, work and school, um, family, mm-hmm. friends, mm-hmm. exercise, health, and sleep. I like sleep. Because it's really important. And for me, and it's unfortunately it's been very heavily weighted this way for the last probably 18 months, it's been work, uh, family, and sleep. Um, I'm in bed most nights by 8.30, and if I'm not, I'm a mess the next day. Yeah, exactly. Um, and I know that. Because you're go, go, go. Mm-hmm. I run a million miles an hour that I, I pretty much crash. Um, and that's that's been a, a important part for a while. Um, and luckily my husband is the same. He'll actually sometimes be asleep even before I am. Um, he works <laughs> a million hours a day as well. So that that's actually been an, an easy one, but it's been an important one for me. So sleep is definitely there, work, family, and sleep. And recently um, – I've been trying to make sure that I'm trying to see my friends again, but for a long time there, oh, I was keep up with them. <laughs> yeah, like my friends were like, "Do you still even live here?" Exactly. <laughs> like, yeah, but be like, "Yes, do you want wine?" <laughs> yeah, and I mean, but for a long time, I was feeling really guilty about it. Yeah, um, and it's not—it's not to say that I should just ignore my friends and stuff, but it, to have that realization that I can prioritize things and that's okay Mm -hmm. and to be able to then say to my friends be like look I'm really sorry I work's a priority at the moment and let's make sure that we can get and I will make sure I've got key dates with my friends yeah set in and stuff like that and recently I've been actually transitioning and doing a lot more one-on-one but it's been then at the expense of my family and so that's been you know it's an interesting piece Mm -hmm. and then the exercise piece is an interesting one because I've been intending on going to the gym for like nine months Uh, I'm I am like the meme where it's like that you know it's it's hilarious um and it's challenging Mm -hmm. and uh, you know when I at the beginning of the year I got a new gym membership because you know that's what you're supposed to but I was like I can't get up at five and go to the gym and go to work for 12 hours and killing myself so I am actually just in the last couple of weeks as, and I, I know I'm doing a lot and to say that work settling down sounds insane, but it actually is now that we're through the transition and the acquisition, you know, through some of the acquisition and, and getting the transition kind of mostly done. So in the last couple of weeks, like I have been going to a, yoga, a couple of yoga classes and stuff like that, but it's, it's hard mm-hmm. and something's got to give to find that time. And that's, that's for me how I keep myself sane. Cause I can't, I can't beat myself up for not trying to have this like, Perfect, perfect outlook. Perfect life. Um, and I think that's where women in particular do a really yeah, bad cause job. Yeah, because we quote-unquote want it all. Yeah, and it's not possible. Yeah. Work-life balance is a myth. Um, integration. <laughs> Work-life integration. <laughs> uh, some days, you know, some days are busy for work. Some days are busy for family, and, and you need to prioritize those when you can. So. What is your favorite way to decompress? Because you've got a lot going on. It can't just be sleep. Yeah. So. Um, <laughs> As an extrovert, I, I love being around people. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's, it is it is very social based. It's going to dinner. It's hanging out with friends. It's um, going and drinking wine with whoever. Um, it's very it's very social based. Um, and that's where as well then rolling some of the yoga back into it um, has been good as well. Mm-hmm. I've definitely been missing that. <laughs> so um, 
which is it's cheating, right? Because rolling in then the the social and the wine at the same time and the decompression and the catching up with friends at the same time is totally cheating. But again, <laughs> that's fine. Like, <laughs> if I can cross things off at the same time, that helps or something. I don't know. It's called but multitasking. Women are great at it. I know. Yeah. So anyway, so that it's it's very social based. It's it's um, yeah, a lot of wine with a lot of friends. So. Good. <laughs> are you a reader? I am. Um and. Despite everything that's going on, um, because I get the train to work now, I've actually read a huge amount of books this year, and it's been awesome. Isn't that the best? <laughs> and that's been a really cool. I actually should. That's been a really cool decompression thing for me as well. Um, it's it's been. My husband for a long time was like, "Why do you keep buying books? You don't read them." And then, um, and we were living downtown, so I wasn't. I, I wasn't. Didn't really have time. But now I'm 30 minutes on the train each way, and yeah. I read, and it's been great. He's like, oh. Oh, I get it. You do read. I love it when I can. And it's being able to carve that time out has been been helpful. So I've been reading a lot um, this year, which has been really cool. So what is a book, a podcast or other resource that you would recommend that's brought you value? Yeah, I've read it. So because we want your full reading list. (laughs) It's pretty long. I'll put it under your show notes. (laughs) Um, It's pretty long. Um, I was joking last night with my husband that it almost feels like self-help, but it's like self-help for business. Um, It's very much around, um, you know, leadership books and coaching and professional development and stuff like that and the one that's sitting in front of me because it's the one that I was reading yesterday on the train um it's uh it's by Reshma um Sajani it's called Brave Not Perfect and it's this Brave Not Perfect Perfect. I did a um I went to TED Women last year it was a if if anyone gets the opportunity to go to a TED conference go it's awesome and I did her (laughs) workshop and it was really cool um and I signed up for it going well I know I'm not perfect like I'm the one with the messy hair and all this kind of stuff, but it's the concept of what she's talking about is it really resonates with me with as women, we're constantly checklisting things. We're not celebrating the wins. We're, you know, we're looking for the next. We're Yeah. And we're always trying to, we're beating ourselves up for not being perfect and yet mm-hmm. killing ourselves at the same time. And, um, you know, the concept behind the book is, you know, we need to, we need to not worry about perfecting that email or perfecting, you know, these things that we're doing and just, just be brave about it, asking for what you want and getting it done essentially. So, uh, I'd recommend that. Um, I've just finished reading Rise and Executive Voice, which was written by Anna Conrad. Um, she's local here in Colorado. She's a, um, professional development coach, um, and a friend of mine, great book, um, really nice narrative around it. Um, and there's a, there's a whole bunch more, um, but I'll get those a list two, they're the last two that I've read. So they're the ones that come to mind. So, but yeah, very much around that professional development coaching, um, and a lot of nonfiction. So Michelle Obama's book, um, uh-huh. is really good too. I read that at the beginning I've of the year. I've heard that's good. Um, my mom sent it to me for Christmas and I laughed, I cried, I resonated <laughs> with it. It was some sitting on the train bawling. Everyone's like, what is wrong with well, her? Like normal <laughs> on our train. <laughs> yeah. So the, the crazy 16th Street, well, fine, whatever. But that's a phenomenal book as well. Um, so, yeah, lots of reading. It's, it's good. So, that's fabulous. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for You're today. Welcome. You have brought such value. I love your perspective on the evolution of the Reservoir Engineer, and I cannot wait to uh, get you back for another one in one way or another. Yeah. So thank you so thank very you. much. So, y'all, how much does Deb rock? No pun intended, but she is so on point, and I love her take on the evolution of the Reservoir Engineer. The better you are at the technical, the better you will be at solutioning, so don't rush it. Anyway, if you have any thoughts or questions for Deb, you can shoot them to me via Facebook, Instagram, or the website at www.thecrudeaudacity.com. Let me know, and we will be sure to circle back up with Deb soon. All right, guys, before you go, if today's episode brought you any sort of value, please rate, review, and subscribe. The more five stars we get, the more often we're able to deliver quality content from industry influencers. And as always, if you have a topic or influencer you would like us to feature, you can get in touch with us via Facebook, Instagram, or at our website, www.thecrudeaudacity.com. We greatly appreciate your engagement, and until next week, give them hell.